More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is May 19th, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight we are joined by Hung Kyu Kim from the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society. Hung Kyu is advised by Drs. Brenda McComb and Matt Betts. He uses long-term ecological data to study birds and specifically how climate change might be affecting birds. Hi, Hung Kyu. Hello. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Hung Kyu, tell us a little bit about what you do here at Oregon State. Um, I'm a third-year PhD student in Oregon State. I'm studying uh, how songbirds in the conifer forest of the Pacific Northwest respond to climate change, and also studying um, a migration ecology of hermit warblers for my uh, doctoral degree. Sweet. And so uh, how, how do you study birds in general, and then how do you understand if the climate is affecting them? Um, right now, I'm working on uh, long-term ecological research um, going on at Ichi Andrews Experimental Forest, which is right next to Blue River, Oregon, in Willamette National Forest. And, can um, you? Can, I'm going to stop you right there yeah. for a second. Can you tell us a little bit about the H.J. Andrews Forest and how it's kind of a unique place to do research and how it's kind of different from um, maybe some other research locations? H. Andrews Experimental Forest is a watershed that is designated for long-term studies. So people have been studying hydrology, nutrient transfer, and all the other sort of uh, ecological aspects of forests in there for several dec decades. Um, that means I have a really good um, support on the information about how uh, surrounding environments, and also it has a nice facility at the headquarters for uh, researchers to stay down there and all the road systems are managed for researchers. So yeah, <laughs> pretty good support. 
Yeah, so this is a resource for Oregon State University uh, students, specifically in the College of Forestry, and they have a great program for students to get grants and other research monies to design their own projects, and it's a pretty cool place. Very, um, I think, Hunk, you, you were telling us that got like portions of the forest that have been heavily managed and then some portions that are still old growth. Yeah, um, the watershed itself um, has a lot of old growth stands, which means it hasn't been um, thinned or harvested for a long time. And there are also a lot of stands that are um, thinned or harvested for experiments in 60s, 70s, until 90s. And those um, difference in forest structure, that reg- the regrowth and the existing forest with complexity um, provides a lot of opportunity for researchers to study difference in uh, forest environment that that drives a difference in uh, ecological interactions between organisms. So when you just arrived before the show, you were telling us that you just were in the field um, and I presume you were doing something related (laughs) to your project. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like and what, what does being in the field mean for you and how do you collect your data? So my um, main method of collecting data is point counts. Um, which means we're surveying point counts for birds. And we're, that means uh, we're surveying birds that, it, that are occurring at the point. Um, and surveyors, uh, technicians, and myself go down to each um, locations in the forest and stand there for a designated time. And in our case, it's 10 minutes uh, to record all the birds that occur within that time period. That means um, we can identify birds down to species and um, try to count, try to separate different individuals during that time period and um, record that. (laughs) And of course, uh, we can't record everything at the same time, so um, we do that in repetition to cover increased detectability of each species. Yeah, that ends up a lot of hiking to reach these points uh, through bushes and steep, steep, steep (laughs) terrain. And is it a pretty quiet time? Because you're not just relying on your your vision to assess like different birds, but you're also trying to listen intently for what you can hear as well. Mm-hmm. Well, the forests are pretty quiet, yeah. <laughs> tranquil, <laughs> but there are noises that can influence our ability to hear, of course, um, like streams, mm-hmm. very loud streams, or uh, vehicles approaching or passing by, or airplanes passing by. And uh, we also record those for, to account for how these different ambient noise can uh, influence our data. Mm. Uh, but in general, it's very quiet place. Yeah. We actually have a recording of uh, some of the birds that you might hear in H.J. Andrews' Experimental Forest. And uh, Lori is going to play a little bit of that for us. So what are we hearing here, Hankyu? <laughs> So this is a recording that I took at H.G. Andrews Experimental Forest uh, in my, this was my first field season in 2017. Um, this is a bird that is called Hermit Warbler. That's such a pretty song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is this bird like doing when it's singing? What is it trying to do? Um, I, I guess I missed the important part. 
Um, and I think I did it with been <laughs> before. Uh, of course, the the timing of my survey is when the birds are breeding uh, in spring, and the timing when when many people in the temperate region who studies birds survey these bird occurrences across landscapes try to measure what are what kind of birds are breeding in these sites because that's a good indication of the species use of that space of course because it, they reproduce young and <laughs> that's the uh, one of the biggest uh, properties of, of fitness so in this case uh, Herman Wobbler I this male Herman Wobbler is trying to defend its territory or adver advertise its um, territory to other uh, surrounding individuals can be a female or other male surrounding telling them that I am here um, don't intrude or uh, mm -hmm. come over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh, breed with me. Yeah. And so uh, the hermit warbler, tell us a little bit more about this bird. They are uh, along. They are a small songbird uh, that forages on conifer canopy, conifer forest. And they uh, migrate migrate down to um, Central Americas and coastal California for winter, and they come back to Oregon, Washington, and. Northern California and Sierra and mountains of Sierra Nevadas to breed in uh, cool, moist uh, conifer forests. They are a true um, endemic species to these Western uh, conifer mixed conifer forests, and and they have a very wide range from Washington to California. I'm interested in how these areas are linked together um, to their wintering grounds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. So you are you able to then uh, visit them in the field where they spend the winter as well, and then visit them here when they're in the in H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest and kind of try to find commonalities or like things that they might need in these particular habitats? Oh, that will be great. Um, <laughs> some people uh, studying long-distance migratory birds had opportunity to visit their wintering grounds for the study, and they looked at um, different, win different effects of wintering ground habitat change, um, or habitat selection by individuals, and such and such, and how that inf and they try to link that difference to the breeding grounds, uh, performance of breeding ground, and overall population trends. But for my dissertation study, <laughs> I I'll be just looking at their uh, migration routes and wintering locations using a small data logger uh, called uh, geolocator uh, or light light level archival tags. Okay. These tags are. Um, collecting um, light, light intensity levels by intervals, as its name tells. Um, and from that, we can actually <coughs> know the sunrise timing, sunset timing, and the time of noon, and the day length of the bird's, bird's current location. And using that information, we uh, backtrack where the bird was. <clears throat> that's the technology that's available right now for studying uh, songbird migration directly, although it has a low, low precision. Several, it can be several hundred kilometers of errors because we are just measuring the light as a proxy for the, its relative location on Earth. It's kind of odd if you think about it. <laughs> We're studying the bird's migration on the Earth using the lights, using the information of the Earth's uh, rotation around the sun and itself. Um, but anyway, <laughs> where I am at. <laughs> yeah, so uh, how so how do you connect bird migrations to uh, 
or how do you examine changes in birds' migrations in the, with a lens looking at climate change at the same time? Like, oh, sure, yeah. Um, so, why birds migrate? That's a that question many people ask in decades, and now people think one of the main reason is they're tracking the resources, the available food resources, for example especially for breeding, when they have to not just feed for themselves, but they have to feed hungry mouths. Um, chicks. Not chicks, <laughs> not mouths. <laughs> Mouth of chicks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that is a very demanding job. And I, I guess everyone who have a kid will know. <laughs> yeah. Taking care of another person uh, or another being. And birds, in, in general, um, the birds that migrate to temperate areas for breeding match their timing of breeding to the maximum availability of food across the world. I think. So they, <laughs> for example, um, songbirds in Europe, there are a lot of studies uh, on how migratory flycatchers arrive at their breeding grounds in Europe uh, in relation to the max maximum availability of caterpillar emergence in these oak forests. So. And this timing of caterpillar emergence is controlled by local climate. And, and you can feel that you can you can you have the knowledge already um, in your life. In warmer springs, you can see flowers budding out, flowering out earlier, leaves coming out earlier. Like this this year, it was really warm. In those cases, caterpillars will accordingly emerge at the same time as the leaf is most palatable. Right. So, so any changes in, in climate uh, could affect to ch or could lead to changes in flowering time or like any of the uh, temperature or precipitation factors that are affecting plants could then indirectly affect caterpillars or indirectly also affect birds that rely on those food resources. Mm -hmm. So uh, changing climate or, or spring getting warmer earlier can lead to these changes that can uh, make it more difficult potentially, I guess, for birds to have enough food during their breeding season. Yeah, think about um, you are in Central Americas or in South, even South America in spring, and you're trying to time your visit in Oregon when you can eat the most. They have no idea what's going on several thousand kilometers away, but they're queued on their whatever they're queuing on and from mm -hmm. their evolutionary history. Uh, many cases, photo period, but probably other local, their environmental factors can influence them. But uh, <clears throat> so they have to match this timing. And, and there are a lot of different uh, hypotheses about how these birds decide to mig start migrate or decide their timing of migration. But in general, they are quite fixed. So if you have if, if so if you think about if you you're you're starving already from long jet lag, long long flight, and then you arrive there and all the food stores are closed. There's nothing to eat. <laughs> what do you what what you can do? Right? So yeah. for these songbirds it's important to match the timing of food and people are studying people study those call it a phenological mismatch. Mm -hmm. This uh, mismatch between the the resource availability and the need of resources for the birds and people are studying those because climate change can potentially lead us to lead the world to a new condition of these phenological events yeah. and 
something that these birds haven't experienced in their uh, past history of evolution. Yeah. So the um, way you're able to study this is because you have this long-term um, ecological research and this long-term data. Um, but this this particular type of data for you kind of goes back to your studies as a um, undergraduate, right? Your interest in long-term ecological data. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So in particular, uh, you were a birder back in at Seoul National University when you're an undergraduate and they this club was actually more than just a birding club. They didn't just go out and look at birds, but they started recording many years, the birds that they were seeing at the in uh, particular locations. Uh, what kind of inferences did they make from those data? People, um, to my understanding or to my memories, <laughs> as far as I can reckon, uh, remember, I think we were trying to see the decline of the birds, not trying to see the decline of the birds to record the decline of the birds, rather than trying to think about why it is happening, because uh, we were just kids <laughs> back then. I mean, yeah. So rather than relating to um, climate change, we were more, more interested in uh, land use change. And it is partly because Korea is a relatively smaller country with larger population to, <laughs> compared to Oregon. It's very, very <laughs> compact and there is a high need of land use and it's very competitive even between humans. So uh, there's not much space for wildlife for any animals. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at why the, we were thinking about how these wintering birds, um, why these birds are declining and loss of uh, agricultural land actually. Um, agricultural lands converted to um, um, buildings and greenhouses, which is still agricultural land, but not rice fields for uh, proper habitat for the birds that winter. Um, but <laughs> we also recorded um, amount of ice underwater, the amount of uh, surface water freezing and stuff like that. Those, uh, but we were mostly interested in how those influence the occurrence of the birds because these are water birds that use these open water uh, availability their wintering habitats yeah so some it sounds like some questions like you know the migration of the hermit warbler or the wintering grounds of water birds in in korea cannot be answered with just one year of data that you have to have multiple years to be able to really see the declines or pick up the smaller changes in communities of birds Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we are looking at change in years, yeah. and time, temporal scale. So we have to look them. To have we need the data that spans back to past and future. <laughs> All right. Well, we are on inspiration dissemination, and we have two traditions that we like to keep, and one of them is to ask you ask you for your advice and uh, who you are advising. And so what have you learned throughout your time that you could you could pass on to the next generation or the next uh, cohort of scientists studying birds? Um, my advice to um, people who are in my shoes or 
or want to be in my shoes, which is maybe a okay idea, not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just kidding. <laughs> you should pursue what you want. Yeah. And that's graduate school is hard, yeah. but you should yeah. still do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my first advice. And the second is advice is per- be persistent. Keep on what you're doing and keep on what you want to do um, and try hard. It's, yeah. um, I think it's getting harder and harder to go into a grad school or um, be in this um, field that we call it field in general. So you have to be persistent yeah. <laughs> if you want to be here. Right. <laughs> yeah. So our other tradition is um, for you to choose a song for us to play. So you can, can you tell us um, what song you chose and why you chose it? Um, I chose Adele's um, When We Were Young. It was on, it popped up on my playlist, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but I thought it was a good song um, that kind of reminds us about the past and the, the living conditions in the past in long time span. Um, and The reason I wanted to study these birds uh, and bird decline, bird conservation, was I wanted to show you know future generation the same thing that I saw. So mm-hmm. maybe that's the reason I chose this song. Yeah, it <laughs> seems yeah, fitting. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and um, we're really happy that you were here with us tonight. Thank yeah. you very much for having me. Yeah. This is Inspiration Dissemination, and on KBVR Corvallis, here is When We Were Young by Adele. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible. The show was started by Jeon Convar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Paget Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsyth, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steyerwalt. To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. And finally... Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination. Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.